Welcome to another Pro Video Coalition podcast. This is a sort of a quickie recording this afternoon after the release of DaVinci Resolve 17, at least the public beta release. We had a little bit of a uh, black magic broadcast from Grant Petty and some of his folks today where they dropped the beta for Resolve 17 here in November. Instead of us getting it in AB this year, we get it in uh, November. But there's a lot of stuff in there. And I think there's more in there than I originally thought there was. So I wanted to do a quick chat about it. Uh, and I grabbed Damian Allen, who we all know, who's a fusion whiz. So he knows a good bit. No one else knows anything about fusion in the world except for Damian. So he's the perfect. That's true. I'm, I'm the only person that knows about it. Yeah. So there you go. Also, I've got Alexis Van Herkman, who is an application consultant who works with Blackmagic on Resolve, but also writes amazing books on color correction and just an, inner, uh, an all-around fount of knowledge when it comes to post protection and no one in the world knows as much about post as alexis so it's perfect oh you that's not true <laughs> thanks but for I, you joining know, i know some things you do know some things so all right what i want to ask you one thing about alexis i'll start off there resolve traditionally was a color grading application which we all know that's where the history it came from but it has yes. over the years evolved into much more than that it now edits it also does color better it uh does audio mixing it does visual effects it does everything like it everything blends in the great world. cocktails, too. It blends great cocktails, and I think it'll clean your toilet if you ask it true. properly. <laughs> Wait, did it doesn't clean your toilet or blend cocktails? Oh, I'm well, sure it you, cleans the toilet. You need, you need the proper add-on for the right. cocktail blending. Is that is that studio version, or that's like the secret studio version? You know what's probably going to be in the free version. Oh, well, well everything's <laughs> going to be there eventually. So um, one thing that he talked about in the new color stuff is new color management. And I think about color management and I think about something that's something some NLEs and some tools that purport to do great color grading do not have, which is a proper color management engine. And when I hear them say that Resolve has new color management, I think, wait a minute, it had great color management to begin with. So that seems to me like a front and center feature that is pretty important, but yet I'm dumb and don't understand it. So please explain. <laughs> so basically color management makes it easier to deal with multiple formats, which, you know, what project these days isn't using multiple formats um, and multiple types of media that are being thrown into a project to basically move all of them into a common working color space. And once in that common working color space, organizationally, it makes it a little bit easier for colorists to manage what's going on. Um, a lot of things that used to be done manually, like assigning different LUTs, you know, the right LUT to the right kind of source material. Mm -hmm. Harry wants one kind of LUT. Blackmagic cameras would want another kind of LUT. If you've got old Cineon files, that's yet a third LUT. A lot of that is done automatically if your media is correctly tagged with the proper color metadata, which these days increasingly is the case, which is pretty amazing. You is, know, that, is, you that, first... is that the cameras themselves are properly tagging this, or is this something that, that colorists and assistants have to do when they ingest the footage? Well, there's three levels, and this is this is true of the the previous color management as well as the new color management. Although one of the one of the new features is that uh, Resolve's ability to read color tags has been 
uh, made more robust. So for example, we now read uh, color management tags from MXF Media as well as QuickTime Media. Okay, and, and that wasn't the case before because MXF Media is quite prevalent in the world. It's quite prevalent in the world, but the reading of the color tag, I mean, adding color management metadata to media is kind of new in general. Not every application has done it consistently. Okay. And which, which we should, I should just add is, is part of the problem, right? I mean, uh, things get lobotomized on the way from the camera through other intermediate stages. So there's no kind of protection against some of this stuff getting lost on its way to resolve, right? Right, right. So, you know, the idea is Resolve now has from input through output the ability to read color tags and then write color tags back out to whatever format of media you're generating. And so the idea is that we want to be a good player in anyone's post-production workflow in terms of not losing valuable metadata that allows a certain amount of automation when it comes to color management. So if there's if there's color metadata in the source media resolve will read it then if you're using raw of course media formats of which resolve reads most of them mm -hmm. um then you're automatically getting your color management uh ingested that way cuz resolve understands the colorimetry of every raw format um, with information from each manufacturer. Okay. So, you know, for those two situations, the metadata assignment, mm -hmm. the, the normalization, if you will, of the source media into the working color space is automatic. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to tag anything. If there is no color uh, metadata available in your source media, then we allow you to manually tag it. So if you've got transcoded media from maybe five years ago when nobody was doing color metadata, um, then you can manually go, you know what, I know that this media is from uh, you know, a Sony Venice or whatever, and it was transcoded and uh, it's supposed to be this, and then Resolve will go, great, now I know what to do with it, and I'll park it into the correct color space. And is there any visual alert or anything in the interface that tells you, hey, we couldn't find something on this one? There is not. There okay. is not. Because, so you of just the, gonna... because of the third level, which is the input color space that you can choose. And again, this isn't new to the new version of Resolve color management. This was in the previous version as well. Um, but people often under, misunderstand it, which is why it's nice to be able to talk about it. Uh, the input color space is only uh, a fallback for clips that don't have any inherent, inherent color management metadata of their own and that you have not tagged yourself. So if you, if you happen it. to know that most of the media is transcoded um, ARRI log C, then you can just say, you know what, the default input color management is going to be ARRI log C, and everything that isn't tagged and isn't known automatically is going to fall back to that. And you can so, set that to be whatever you want. So is there a way to override the automatic stuff? Oh, yeah. It's, a, okay. it's kind of a tree. So if you've got, good, good. If you've got uh, color space metadata baked into the clip, 
and you tag it, your tag overrides. Overrides, great. Well, we, I, I know uh, for years, and I don't know if this is still a case, but Nuke does this same thing. It looks at the metadata and applies the, you know, removes whatever LUTs there. But one of the problems I always had was Flame would export DPXs and it would tag them as sRGB in the metadata by mistake. And so Nuke would see it and apply or or remove an sRGB LUT instead of a, a Cineon LUT. Mm. And so obviously situations like that, you need to go in and manually say, no, I know what the metadata says, but it's wrong. You know, but right. it sounds like th that's easy to do. Is all this color yes. management talk more about well, so, assigning it a proper LUT when you tag no, it no, for no, color no. That's, management, that's, or is that something that has to process throughout the whole pipeline? Because I, I wonder, like, one part of it. Well, yeah, if you're talking about, let's say you've had um, Log C or some, something that's been transcoded to ProRes, for example, ProRes 4x4 that lost its embedded uh, metadata tagging for the color management and you have to manually assign it. What happens if you don't assign anything at all? Or it's assigned in, improperly? Are you just suddenly seeing like a weird image or are you just can you just still grade it, you know, like any other piece of media and it's going to lose something on the back end or what's? Well, it it depends on the kind of media you have and one thing that i think it's important to understand about you know any of these any lut that's normalizing a log encoded format and typically when you're talking about media that's been transcoded for offline editing let's say you know you didn't want to use all the raw media you wanted to create a set of lightweight say prores proxy media or or you know mxf media in some format um, and there is a great with. new proxy workflow, by the way, we can talk about in a minute. There is, there is. Um, but you want to do that, but you want to bake in, uh, you know, the uh, the log encoding so that if you have any grading you just want to do during the offline edit, you can do it. Mm -hmm. um, and if, you, if you're set up that way, then the worst thing that's going to happen if you apply the wrong log encoded tag um if you know if you you didn't have any baked in metadata which of course now wouldn't happen in resolve um but wherever wherever the media came from the worst that's going to happen is the contrast is going to maybe look a little crunchy or it's maybe going to look a little light mm -hmm. um because most most and i think damien can can back me up on this most normalization luts or or normalization operations um, are they're just contrast adjustments? Yeah, I think maybe the, the, a little uh, bit of a color color bump. The and... only exception would be maybe I think sRGB sometimes clips in the conversion, uh, just because the spec really didn't account for the larger dynamic range. But I, I don't know if that is handled we, differently now. We don't now. clip. We okay. don't clip. If you're using the color management, because we're not actually using LUTs, we're using. Um, basically math mathematical calculations that procedurally do the same thing. Right. Um, internally, there's there's no need to clip out of bounds values. And so that's, and that's something that's frequently misunderstood because people are used to using LUTs. If I apply a LUT, it's gonna clip the highlights, it's gonna clip yeah, the shadows yeah. maybe. Um, that doesn't happen with RCM because even though RCM may be parking data in a limited color space say you choose you want to work in 709 right 
which yeah. up till now has been the color space. And now all of a sudden it's the small color space, right? Yeah. Relative to anything else you could be doing. Um, we're not going to clip data that falls outside of that color space simply because we're converting to Rec. 709. The math is capable of extrapolating out of bounds values where they should be. And because Resolve's doing everything in 32-bit floating point, none of that is clipped and nothing is clipped until you render your final output. Right. I, the thing was, though, I just, I, and again, I don't know if this has changed, but in the sRGB specifications, even though you were moving to float, uh, it would sometimes truncate data in the because it, it the spec didn't have didn't know what to do in the ends of the curve. Now okay. maybe that was just a limitation of the of, of you know it's like people still trying to use targets in 2020, which boggles the mind. But anyway, oh man, I just got a project with <laughs> animation files in it. <laughs> oh my, my god, <laughs> that's old school right there, man. Yeah. So, yeah, like, so anyway, but here's the thing. Here's hang on a second. You, this is, you, you're, you, you used the term RCM a couple of times. That's Resolve Color Management. Is that's yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. But and, and but now we have RCM two, which I guess is this next level. Well, we you know right? we 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 do and we don't because it's still when you when you go into the menu, it's simply called Resolve Color Management. Oh, we just okay. in in the description of you know we've added improvements to it. You know, we can't, it's sort of like the problem Apple has where every every new MacBook Pro is a MacBook Pro. So, yeah. you know, you gotta distinguish it somehow. So yeah. this year's Resolve Color Management, and by the way, um, anyone who imports a project using the prior color management, that project will continue to use what we will tag as legacy color yeah. management, because if we change that on you, your whole, all your grades would be completely blown up so we can't do that does every um, big resolve release does it get updates to the color management or is this no or is this no, this, this is, is why this is, is kind the, of a big deal this is kind of a big deal we've added additional options to color management mm -hmm. release over release but we really haven't tinkered deeply with the mechanism as much as we have this time and that that takes me to what I, I i keep trying to get at which is you know what we're talking about is actually the least interesting part of what makes the new rcm cool mm -hmm. um but it's 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 good for people to know because i've been i've been pitching for years that you know rcm sounds like the kind of thing that no editor should care about and yet every editor can benefit from it greatly because it will prevent you from ever having to look at flat log encoded footage, even if you don't have it graded, simply normalizing it to the way it was going to look on the camera during the shoot mm -hmm. gets you way ahead of the game. And at this point, it's simply one setting to turn on to get that benefit if things are correctly tagged if they're not correctly tagged then you can tag them yourself and it's really not that hard but it just makes life easier um how much even for editors how much does the new color management have to do with the uh hdr uh and rec 2020 and all that stuff that's you know increasingly becoming a thing that we have to deal with well okay so let me let me try to summarize as quickly as possible um what i think is exciting about the new rcm so First off, we've made it more accessible for folks, and people saw that in the video during the presentation. Uh, you know, 
there are a lot of settings. And in fact, the improvements that have been made added more settings. And there was a lot of fretfulness about, you know, geez, if we give people, you know, 50 settings, are they going to, I mean, it's not 50 settings, but if we give people 15 settings, is that going to freak people out? Right. Um, Cause you don't always need to change every setting. It's simply there so that people who need to really do powerful finishing work can do what they need to do. Um, and so the decision was made to basically create an, an almost sort of a preset mechanism where at the top level, you simply turn it on and then you choose a workflow and you choose your output. And those are the only three decisions you have to make. And the workflows are as clearly identified as we could come up with. I wrote the little three sentence explanation of each one. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if you want to do a conventional Rec 709 workflow, there's an SDR Rec 709 setting, and that makes everything work the way a traditional DaVinci Resolve artist would expect it to work. Um, and at that top level, I'm counting them right now, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's seven options to choose from, and they're all obvious. Four of them are SDR options, two of them are HDR options, and then one of them is a universal option that uses all of the newest technologies to give you a really, really powerful color-managed experience using all the new tools. And is that a linear working space on the timeline? Um, that is a linear working space when it needs to be. So in the Fusion page, when you turn on color management, everything in the Fusion page is converted to linear and then right. converted back out of linear automatically. So you don't even have to do an operator at the beginning of your, your process tree. You just turn it on and it, and it happens. It's pretty great. Inside of the color page, there are specific operations that want to work in linear, and those are already automatically converting to linear to provide the result that you want. A lot of our lighting plugins already do that under the hood, and you don't have to turn it on. It just happens because it's the right thing to do for that operation. Um, you know, other other operations, and you know, this this goes to your point, Scott. The, uh, the new HDR palette is the first of our color space aware palettes. And so that palette, when you have RCM turned on, is automatically cooperating with RCM and automatically inherits an understanding of the color space of every single clip that it's dealing with um, and the timeline working space that you're working within so that it's able to provide you a consistent experience no matter what the timeline working space is. In the previous version of DaVinci Resolve's color management, um, when you change the timeline working space, as, as anyone who's a colorist will attest, the whole feel of the controls would be different because mm -hmm. now all of a sudden things are being spread into a wider gamut or a narrower gamut or this or that. And people who liked working um, in a log encoded, you know, in a log space, uh, would be happy with that. But people who like working the traditional rec 709 way would be unhappy with that. And so that was a big decision, but 
now with the ability to have color space aware tools, that's less of an issue. So for example, the HDR palette always feels the same no matter what color space you're working within as the timeline color space. And there's one other, actually there are two other palettes that have been uh, made color space aware. It's a work in progress. Uh, the uh, qualifier palette has been made color space aware. And this is gonna be a big deal for every single colorist that likes working log that has complained that, well, the, the keyer doesn't work well because I'm trying to key in log and everything sucks. And yeah, that, that was a problem. Now the qualifier palette is color space aware. So no matter what color space you're working within, you're gonna be able to pull a high quality key. Um, the keys won't be exactly pixel for pixel the same in every color space, but they're pretty close. Why, um, why are more, all the palettes, why would they not all be color space aware from day one, like from the very beginning? Um, <laughs> because it's a lot of work, it's a lot of colorimetry, um, and we've, Obviously, we ship a lot of other features besides just this. Um, also, it's been important to take a measured approach um, and make sure that each one gets done well and is tested correctly and is giving the results that everyone expects before we move gotcha. on. So it's so, a you know it's it's it, and by the way, the other pal uh, palette that's made color been made color space aware, uh, and this happened. I don't think anyone would mind me saying this relatively late in the in the process as we got to the the curves palette and that's fantastic hmm. um because anyone who knows me and has seen me work knows that i love using the curves i, I gotta so, say that's probably my favorite color correction tool i'm I, i'm amazed at how well the curves handles in uh, resolve compared with where i've used it in other applications like it's much harder to end up with banding and things like that with the curve tool in Resolve than a lot of our other apps. So I, I don't and, know, there's some ma magic juju under the hood there somewhere. And that's really improved over the years. <laughs> like whenever somebody comes to us with like, oh, here, here's a shot where the curve, you know, caused some problems. Um, eight times out of 10, the team's been able to make a tweak to wow. get rid of that issue. So it's, you know, if you talk to people, you know, maybe five years ago, there would have been a little more criticism of certain of the curves, but a lot of those curves have have improved markedly. Oh. Um, and about, by the way, uh, we, add, we added a new one. There's this new SAT versus Loom curve that was demoed. That's, you know, really, it's a cool thing. It's a little abstract until you start yeah, I was working say, with it a little bit. Take a while to get your head around it, I would imagine. I mean, the easiest way to pitch it is uh, if you've got a clip, like let's say you're still in the Rec. 709 world and you're worried about some oversaturation clipping at the top of your signal, this curve makes it really easy to say, you know what, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and darken all the oversaturated values to just pull that part of the signal in a little bit. That's a very utilitarian use of it, um, but it's one of the things that you can do uh, you know, really quickly, and it's a cool thing. So we got a brand new curve in the set versus Luma, but now how does this translate into the the new color color warper? Because just from a well, let me color let me actually, let me let me spool back to color management because we didn't we didn't end that. Oh my um, god, how I, long does color management go? Can I, can I, it's it's been on this for twenty three minutes. I'll wrap it up. 
I'll wrap Can I just it ask up. one quick question though on that on the color management? Yeah. Is there like, is there a specific reason why you didn't just why it isn't just linear all the way through? Like you remove the LUT, work in linear, then apply the output LUT. Is it because colorists are used to the way controls respond in log, or is there another reason why you wouldn't just be linear float all the way through? It's because colorists are used to the way things right. work either in log or in the color space of their choice, um, which takes me to, thanks for the softball, um, <laughs> the the new, and I'm just sort of scrolling down so I make sure I get the messaging right, uh, the new DaVinci wide gamut color space and DaVinci intermediate gamma curve. Um, those are uh, DaVinci uh, publicly available, um, all the information is published. We have a very nice white paper. Um, color space and transfer function pairs that you can use as your working color space that has been designed to be wide enough to encompass every conceivable workflow you could want to do these days. Um, if you look at the, the triangle on the CIE XY chart, it goes right off the sides because mathematically the goal was to make calculations within that triangle as as easy and clean as possible. Um, there's a lot of math that has gone into this. I can only summarize it for you because I'm not a real color scientist. Um, but the cool thing about that is up till now, if you wanted to use a wide color space, you kind of had to take a guess. Well, do I want to use Aries color space? Do I want to use the the red um, extra wide color space? Um, and everyone could potentially be doing something a little bit different. This makes it easier for Resolve users if they give it a try and they decide they like it to standardize on something that's intrinsic to Resolve that isn't going to change. And that that's one of the coolest new things in RCM, the new version. And I've been using it quite a bit as I've been doing some internal testing. Um, and, and I'm very happy with it. The other thing that's really cool is there is this new concept of input tone mapping in addition to the output tone mapping that we've already always had. Um, and what the input tone mapping does is it does a more consistent job of redistributing incoming color from media, basically incoming values, into the color, the working color space um, to make it a little bit easier to get more consistent results. And both of these tone mapping settings have... Uh, new tone mapping um, DaVinci settings. The option is called DaVinci. Um, and, you know, those are basically optimized to give you the most joy in terms of mapping things usefully. If you've got a combo SDR, HDR timeline, um, it gives you a great starting point. And it also, on the way out, gives you a really beautiful, smooth roll-off into the shadows and the highlights. But there are other options available as well. And if you don't like any of that, you can turn them off. 
which is why we give you manual settings. But if you give the tone mapping a try, you'll quickly see that it's there to really help you out. And in conjunction with the Color Space Aware tools, you can really get some some beautiful results from wide gamut media. It's it's so there's there's a lot to it. That's the best way I have of summarizing it. So I mean, I think it's safe to say color, cool. color management goes quite deep. I mean, not because it's you're trying to make it complex, but because it's sort of the the foundation of of high end proper color grading. Right. Well, let me give you another another example of another new feature. There is a um, graphics white setting now for your project, which uh, I'm really glad that we've been able to introduce. And the idea is if you're working in HDR, there's a concept of what is white for a title in HDR. Oh. You don't necessarily want it to be right. maximum, you know, a thousand nits or 4,000 nits. Uh, you want it to be whatever you've decided to standardize on. There's an IETU recommendation that graphics white should probably be 203 nits. Mm -hmm. um, I know other facilities that are thinking that closer to 300 nits is pretty good. There's no standard, but the bottom line is with this new setting, now instead of having to go through your whole freaking project yeah. and tweak all your titles to be what they should be, now the title generators and the subtitles are going to obey the single setting that you can change whenever you want. That's a huge deal for anyone doing finishing. And, you know, let's let's face it, how many editors get stuck with some of the finishing work? If somebody comes back and says, oh, all the titles are the wrong level, you can just say, great, what do you want them to be? 300 nits, tap, tap, enter, done. Hmm, that's and that's cool. the power of color management. Well, you know, and that's, that's to me, like you're talking about those seven profiles that you've set up, the seven workflows. Um, that is huge because I would I would honestly say probably about ninety percent of the artists I've ever hired or worked or, or worked with really don't understand color management at all, and so if you can at least say hey, uh, just pick one of these and go with it, that's half the battle won in terms of some of the horrible stuff that goes on in post with color management. Oh yeah. Where, where, where do you access like these these sort of seven presets? Is that in the uh, in the in the project settings? Project settings. It's okay. in the project settings. If you go to the color management panel, that's where you can choose the color science. Right. And by default, color science remains traditional DaVinci YRGB. Mm -hmm. Everything's okay. manual. Um, but if you turn on uh, Resolve Color Management, that's when these controls are exposed. Oh, which I almost. Yeah. I almost feel like that's a shame. I, I, I mean, I understand the choice, but I wish for the uninitiated, who are the ones that are not likely to know to go in there and change that, they almost should have that set to uh, color managed by default. But Yeah, uh, I mean, it's an ongoing conversation, and I think, you know, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth because no one said this, but I have a feeling that there's going to be a lot of attention paid to how people like RCM during the public beta, right? You know, the if, other if, uh, well, also it seems you've got high-end, you know, colorist facilities that are kind of the the bread, and, you know, the the backbone of Resolve itself, and that seems like yeah. a big setting to change by default because even even some of the most well-versed colorists don't always dig into like, okay, what's new in the, in this update, and and if you it seems like if you change well, that, they didn't realize the, that that could cause some big problems. 
the fun thing about DaVinci Resolve, and this is one of the oldest features in the entire application, is you can actually redefine your default project settings. So if you have a particular way your facility likes to work, you can set that up so that whenever you make a new project, it uses your favored settings. So you can change the defaults whenever you like. Um, I think most people don't realize you can do that, but anyone who's been uh, around the around the bend with, with Resolve, um, one of the first things they do is they change their default project settings to be what they like. Oh. There are a lot of settings so, you can change. Yeah. Yeah, let, let me ask you this. Has there been anything changed in terms of monitor LUTs? Because I know that's one of the areas where, especially people who aren't boutique studios, aren't particularly savvy, have a hard time wrestling with the actual uh, broadcast monitor LUTs and those kinds of things. That always seems like a bit of a minefield. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea is if you're using Resolve Color Management correctly, you're sending the correct image to the display, right? And this this was actually a topic of some debate that I was I'm I'm not a I'm not too big to admit when I'm wrong. I was on the wrong side of that because um, my original thinking was that well, when you, when you change your preset, why doesn't the your output preset change with it because that should go along with it. Um, but it it was brought to my attention that, you know, well, the output is really going to be a function of what display do you have and how do you have it set up. You don't want your output changing every time you, you choose a new workflow right. to work with because yeah. ultimately the output depends on how your monitor is set up. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, okay, that that makes sense. Like, we really explored all kinds of ways of trying to make RCM as easy as possible because yeah. it's 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 so easy to say, well, but you know, we should really expose this thing, and then you know, we really need to expose this other thing, and all of a sudden, you're back to the full set of controls, yeah. and you haven't saved anybody anything. So we we really had long conversations about this to try and strike a, a good balance. Yeah, um, so it sounds like uh, it sounds like a win. I'll have to play with it for sure. Yeah, and by the way, in case anyone's wondering, um, while it's cool that the HDR palette, which is an amazing color tool, uh, works beautifully with RCM, you actually, if, if, you, if you're adamantly opposed to using RCM because your facility has your own pipeline and your own DCMLs that you like using. And, you know, there are a lot of facilities like this. They have their own very specific way of setting everything up. You can use the HDR palette without color management. And all you have to do is basically, you know, choose manually within the palette's options from the option menu on the palette uh, mm. what the working color space should be. And it, it defaults to the timeline color space, which is always set. Even if you have RCM turned off, there's always a timeline color space. So this HDR um, palette, is that that's new in 17, right? That is brand new in 17. Yeah, I'm just checking that out because, you know, traditionally you've got Lift Gamma Gain is your, is your color wheels, but HDR mm -hmm. palette now goes, do you have lots of them? Black, dark, shadow, light, highlights, and specular. We've got six zones and global settings interesting yeah. and so the idea is that each one of those zones it's a hard thing to describe but i'll i'll try 
Well, if, um, and if you're not working in HDR, sometimes they don't like right now. They're not doing anything for my little SD. Well, well, here's the, here's the thing is, um, so those zones are dependent on how the clip is mapped into the timeline color space, uh, right? Right. Whether it's been remapped or whether it's simply sitting there the way it is on your hard drive, mm -hmm. right? And so there is that zones graph that you can open up and you'll see at the top of the zones graph, there's a series of handles, one for each zone you can manipulate. Oh, you right. can move those handles to be a better map for the clip in the scene that you have. And once you've done that, every single one of those zones are going to specifically influence uh, the, the area of image tonality defined by that border. And the way it works is you basically have shadow facing zones and highlight facing zones. And each zone starts from a certain point and modifies everything down or everything up. They're kind of they're kind of one way zones, right? But they overlap. And the mathematical way that they blend one into the other has been tailored to provide the smoothest possible transition from right. any adjustments you might want to make. And so, for example, if we just talk about highlights, um, because that's one of the chief impetuses for this, this thing, because in HDR, you have this tremendous differentiation of highlights, right? Everything from 100 nits up to 500, 1,000 nits, 1,500, like you have this huge spread of different levels of highlights that you can now sculpt. And these tools allow you to do that by providing you with, a by default, um, a light control, a highlight control, and a specular control. So you have separate adjustment of three levels, three degrees of highlights that you want to tweak. So um, are, you, are, are you saying that if even if you're working in a regular non-HDR project, you could get in there and, and, and get a little bit more finer adjustment on what would normally be your lift gamma gain? Absolutely. Uh, that, that you wouldn't, that you can't get otherwise? Because I'm just playing with it now. And, and if you click into that, uh, the graph, the, uh, what's the thing called? I'd see where you adjust those things. And the zones graph. It's complex, but it looks like it could really give you some real, real minute controls that, that you really couldn't. I mean, maybe you would have had to do some kind of masking or some kind of keying before, but you may have maybe able to get some control without having to do that now. Well, and, and here's my pitch, because this has been my experience, is this palette is the closest I've come to having the kind of control I usually exercise with curves. Mm -hmm attached to trackballs and rings. Oh. So it, you know, once you get the hang of it, of bending the signal in different ways, and by the way, it's a mistake to jump straight into the zones. That's not the way you want to approach this tool. The global controls are there to give you this very log film grading like experience in terms of making an overall adjustment, but here's the deal, because it's all based on exposure, 
And that's the other thing to understand about this palette is the whole experience is tailored to a very photometric way of manipulating the image. You know, it's it's not for nothing that everything is measured in the zones palettes based on stops because the underlying color space that this palette works within is not the timeline color space. It's as they said in the presentation, it is a perceptually uniform color space that is specifically tailored to allow you to manipulate the image in a much more human vision system friendly way. You know, I've, I've talked to colorists and they've said that these kinds of controls almost feel like they're back in a dark room, hmm. right? Because the way the exposure control works is different than simply a lift. It's not just a uniform stretching of the, the signal based on multiplication. Um, it's, it's actually working in this perceptually uniform color space um, to make the signal respond in a certain way. Saturation isn't simply, you know, dividing all of the colors. Saturation is actually working within this perceptually aware color space. So you'll find, this is one of the first things I noticed, if you turn saturation down to get kind of a really muted color look, the look is has has way more of a vibe than just the regular saturation control. If you turn saturation up, you don't get this overdriven, you know, oh God, everything's just bleeding kind of look. You get something that just looks right. It's hard to describe without without using it, but every single control in the HDR palette um, works in this way. Tint and, tint and temp um, are not just the approximation controls that exist elsewhere in Resolve. Uh, those are actually based on a plugin that Michael Shenry, our chief, chief color scientist, uh, did last year. Uh, it is actually a photometrically accurate um, recalculation of the color temperature of the light in the scene. It works in, I believe it's, it's IP color space, the color space of the human vision system. Um, so those temp and tint controls are very different and they're fantastic. That's correct. Uh, that's, uh... Again, they feel right. You know, you're actually changing the light on the set. You're it, not it feels... just making everything orange. It also feels a lot like there was a whole lot of thought put into that as opposed to just dropping something in when HDR kind of came into fashion a couple of years ago when it became, you know, a, a, sort of a normal thing for a lot of folks. It feels like enormous, really... enormous amount of thought. And you can save presets. So if you have a set of zone mappings that you like, you can save those for recall as a preset. And on top of everything else, you can add zones. I predict a thousand YouTube videos showing one how to use the HDR palette in SDR and only one of them being correct. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am going to be doing a set of videos on the color tools with Ripple training. Oh, nice. Very nice. Awesome. Well, we talked about, I mean, we'll skip the color warper and go to a couple other things. I mean, the color warper, I think that's the other new sort of visual oh, yeah. feature that's like, oh, that's something I've never, I've never seen before, but it's, it's basically a, you know, a spider web on a color wheel and you just pull the points around to manipulate the color on the spider web, if you will. It's, it's really, uh, it's really, really a 
cool little thing. It feels like it could be easier to to dial in, you know, certain parts of the image with that than it would be the curves. Um, you know, it could be. The thing about curves is they only allow you to manipulate one aspect of color at a time. The thing about the warper tools is because now this is a this is a two-dimensional tool rather than a one-dimensional curve is you can now adjust two parameters at a time. Mm -hmm. So the 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 top level uh, tool which is the the hue saturation curve allows you to simultaneously adjust the hue and the saturation of the range of the grid that you're manipulating. Really it's a it's a it's a grid warper, it's a mesh warper except the mesh is superimposed over the color in your scene and you can you can either use a higher density or a lower density mesh depending on how wide a range of color you want mm -hmm. to manipulate. It, um, I think it'll take some, some plane when, when people start to get into it because, you know, you can, like you said, you can define like six dots or, or the, you know, the six dot option is not very dense, but you get up to like the 24 dot and then the, you know, the 24 and the 16, and these are the controls in the bottom left corner. You, you mm -hmm. realize that, boy, you can certainly uh, do some finite, very finite adjustment, adjustments in there. And I, I think it'll be a lot, it's a lot more fun to play with the color warper than it is the curves. Can... It's very fun, and the adjustments are very clean. Is there? Can you make that palette bigger? Because when you are going very dense with the you dots, can. I guess you just need to drag up the interface. No, know. there's a there's a button. There's a button that pops it out into its own window. Oh, and if you want to make that as big as your second window, you or your second monitor, you can. That's awesome. That's, that's go uh, nuts. That's pretty cool. But awesome. here's the thing. Here's the thing. And this was shown um, in the demo is you don't have to use it by manipulating the points in the grid. You can sample colors directly in the image and then drag around to manipulate that point in the exact same way. And you can lock off points in the same way. So you, you don't have to touch the grid at all. You can just click and drag in the viewer to make all of those adjustments. And I predict most people are probably oh, going to be Is that with a qualifier tool? No, no, no. That's just when you have that palette turned on, that's what happens when you click and drag in the viewer. It's automatic. Oh, interesting. And that's not working when I'm trying it, but it's, it sounds quite, uh, it sounds quite cool. It sounds like it, you know, it, it is a nicer way than having to go drag a bunch of little dots little dots around um, well it, it depends on what you're trying to do i mean it, it's sort of like qualifiers right keyers um you know it's it's certainly a great way to you know just click to sample part of the image and then adjust with the you know add to or remove from from controls mm -hmm. but people who are power users may find it a little easier to just jump down into the direct controls and manipulate the sliders it really you have you have either workflow depending on how how you want to work and there are ways of using the overall mesh to create more scenic looks if you if you manipulate the mesh for creative effect so there's really you know it's it's kind of in my experience and i always have fun doing what I do with DaVinci because they throw these technologies at me. And of course, I never have a manual, right? It's just like, oh, here's here's some stuff we're doing. 
do you have any suggestions on, you know, <laughs> where where we can go with it? Maybe. And so I had to spend a week just screwing around with stuff, trying to figure out like this is really powerful, but what what could I see doing with this? And you know, what what do I see, you know, might be ways of extending the UI to to make those things easier and kind of the way I see it, two of the things that you can do most readily is highly specific looks, um, adjustments of particular colors uh, that doesn't necessarily require you to jump jump to a qualifier mm -hmm. um, and that blend in with the surrounding colors the way curves operate uh, or the kind of I'm going to manipulate the overall grid and create a really complex, sophisticated, uh, you know, vibe for the overall scene. I'm going to just twist all the colors around to be just a little bit different in the way that I want them to be. Gotcha. Um, and both of those things are equally possible using these controls. There, um, it's it's kind of like there are multiple ways to achieve any one thing, especially in the color page. And, you know, you add something like the color warper in, you've got just another level of detail and how you can achieve what you, uh, what you want to, what you want to do. And that's, um, and that makes for a more complex tool sometimes, but it also makes for, a, uh, I think people, it's nice. People can work in any way in which they want to. And well, and this is, this is a thing that I, and I really want people to look at it. This is a, this is a playful tool. You know, this is a tool that you can have fun with. This isn't, you know, this isn't such a utilitarian piece of UI that, you know, it's like, oh, this, you know, this one tool does the one thing. Um, this is a tool where people will find uses for it that I haven't thought of, you know, in the time I've been working with it. Uh, and it's and it's just fun. It's, you start using it and it's it's fun. It makes certain things not just a little faster, but more joyful to do. Well, and I can't, I can't, I can't. That's important in post-production sometimes. It is, it is. And that's, you know, I, I, it's so rare that your core tools get something that lets you do something that's productive that's also fun. Okay, well, all right. Speaking of fun, let's take a big turn here, and uh, and I think we covered the, you know, but I don't want to take this over an hour, so we're close. We got about ten minutes left. And I want to. Magic mask is awesome. Well, okay, magic mask look look looks pretty cool. But you talk about fun. Um, we have the new speed editor hardware control surface, which I think is completely out of the blue. I, I know we had talked about. When the Resolve Editor keyboard came out, they talked about possibly some other hardware designs coming off of that, and I guess this would be the first one. But it's like a new mini controller that's not a keyboard, but yet it has a bunch of editing functions right there on this little $249 piece of hardware with a big jog shuttle wheel and a whole bunch of editorial buttons and multicam mm -hmm. buttons. And it's designed, from what I could gather, to really work nicely with the cut page. It, it seems like that may make the cut page become somewhat useful i don't i don't know i don't know alexis if you've been able to touch one or not uh, but it's um i will confess the cut page has not been my area of focus as i've been working with the team i've tried to play with the cut page and i'm just not feeling it but that's just me um, maybe you're not a youtuber maybe that's the problem you know it's it's one of those things where you're going to connect with the cut page or not and that's why we have two pages 
So True. people who are looking for a more streamlined experience and who are interested in the specific kinds of design innovations that the cut page is pursuing are going to be really happy with where it's going this year. It's everything that the cut page has been doing up till now. Um, and, and even more of that. So it's, it's traveling along its own path and it's a path that has adherence and those adherents are really excited about it. Well, it seems people really, who really, want... no, go ahead. People mm -hmm. who want, people no, no, who go... want... I was going to say people, people who want more of a traditional source record structured editing model, mm -hmm. which is what the edit page provides, uh, you know, still have the edit page, which sure. by the way is chock full of lots of new features. Yeah, there's, there's a ton itself. of uh, small stuff in there. I, I wrote a, a PVC article about sort of like my top seven favorite craft editing features of Resolve 17, and they're you know it's mostly all some smaller things that happens in the uh, in the cut page. One thing about I'm sorry, things that happen in the edit page. One thing that happens in the cut page, it feels like whenever I see Grant do these demos, is that he focuses really heavily on multicam in the cut page, but multicam that has had proper audio timecode to sync the cameras, which is, you know, kind of a luxury these days. And I don't think the cut page is really, I don't think it's only designed for timecode synced multicam, but it's, it's, it definitely sort of sells it that way. And, and, and the speed editor felt like that's where it's really going to shine. And if that's what you work in, Boy, I think you should probably switch to Resolve tomorrow, but I don't know if you know if the speed editor is going to do much for traditional craft editors. But you know, I don't know. Well, Again, you, you know, I, I want to play you with know, it. Scott. If if you buy the high the kind of high quality low cost cameras that Blackmagic is producing, then you'll you have time, time code on everything. That you can. That will be a. Uh, that would be. See, I think that's and, that's the end of the conversation right there. Yeah. And and by the way, by ecosystem the way, baby, I, work in the ecosystem. I yeah. wanna I wanna throw a bone to something that I don't think was mentioned, but it's you know it's mind blowing. Which is if you've got the ATEM Mini Pro recording all of the isolated angles from all of the cameras that you've got, you can import those projects directly into the cut page, and then mm. all of these multi-cam sync oriented tools that Grant has been showing make all the sense in the world because that's what the A10 Mini Pro is delivering. Interesting. And that's that's amazing. I mean, A, the A10 Mini Pro is incredibly affordable. Um, and it's, I mean, talk about the right product for these times of pandemic. Yeah. And B, yeah, no the, the fact that it's able to deliver independent ISOs and an edited project to resolve, which you can then tweak, that's brilliance. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I, I think the only the only thing I could say is I, I wish those projects were a little more accessible on the edit page, but really those projects have been engineered to play into the strengths of the cut page mm. and the way the cut page works. Well, I, I think when you look at sort of the bullet point features of, of, of this release, you know, you, you just scan down them and the edit page has, you know, pretty much more bullet points than all the other pages. 
and maybe except maybe the Fairlight page, but it's, it's pretty close. But it's it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of small things that if you're an editor, you'll be like, oh, that little thing right there saves me a couple of clicks, or you know, like the auto align feature in the timeline, which will let you select stacked clips and auto align them by uh, by audio waveform or time code. It's the kind of thing you 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 know probably don't think much about until you really need that, and when you do, you can sort of build new workflows around you know, that tiny new feature that was implemented. And I think that's the kind of stuff that, that there was enough of that that added up, I guess, to, you know, to give us the new, the new number to go in from 16 to 17, or perhaps it's a new year. So that just makes sense. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, when, when the release was embarked upon, it was always known that this was going to be a, a big color release. As you well know, colorists don't often get center stage that's in DaVinci Resolve releases, despite our heritage. Um, which is not to say we never give colorists anything. There's always a healthy number of features there. Uh, but things had stacked up, and there was a real desire to solve a lot of the things that we solved on the color page. Yeah. So I feel really, you know, that all by itself merits 17. And then on top of that, um, again, the Fairlight page is outside my area of expertise. Um, but, of course, I'm I'm familiar enough with it. Uh, to know that it is a gigantic release for Fairlight, especially yeah. for, for people coming from Pro Tools who saw maybe a few deficiencies in the Fairlight approach. I think a lot of that has been addressed yeah. and addressed very powerfully. There was a specific mention of uh, Fairlight originally was really hardware control surface based, but they've, they've made it a point to try to make it more accessible to, to keyboard and mouse. And I've done mm -hmm. some mixing in, uh, in, in, in Fairlight myself just this year for the first time, really some real bigger projects. And, and, uh, and I can, I, I, it's, it's come a long way and I'm really excited to see what, what happens with this one because uh, you know, there's a lot of um, stuff in there. Damien, what about fusion? Did we get uh, you're, you're, you know, as I mentioned, the world's f f foremost expert on fusion. What, um, how's, yeah. what are we getting there? You know, it's interesting because fusion, um, on the face of it, it, it's not a massive update and I'm sure there'll be some people disappointed, uh, in terms of what's there, but I actually think probably the most impressive thing for me is access to all of the resolve effects as first class citizens, because that is amazing machine learning driven tools for doing all kinds of weird and wonderful repair work and things like that. And a, a, the resolve timeline just isn't the right place really to do that kind of work. And so being able to use those nodes, like the dirt removal, things like that, uh, inside of a node based environment like fusion actually, I think is going to be really powerful. So that's probably the biggest thing that, that, I'm seeing out of the release. There's a bunch of other little efficiencies like um, uh, effects templates, which for motion graphics work, building stuff to be used in. Uh, so if you have a, a fusion designer that wants to design lower thirds and titles for uh, editors to consume, the, that's kind of opened up a little bit more than it was before. Some of it was already available, but I think they've just, looks like they've just simplified it really. Um, I saw a couple of people on Twitter comment about the uh, audio playback and waveforms and and some of the I guess within Fusion nodes or something when you've got your yeah I mean your clips. part of part of the problem for me is I'm I'm very much a VFX guy I'm not so much a motion graphics guy and there's there's definitely a lot of like they have new shape tools and things and I have to be honest I haven't really explored those just because 
that's not my world. But uh, I don't know, Alexis, if you have anything else to comment on the fusion stuff? Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's been done to give the version of fusion that's interior to DaVinci Resolve greater parity with standalone right. fusion. And still, you know, that's still, a big deal. We still can't uh dual monitor support isn't great still from what i can tell so far uh well it's it's kind of trapped by the resolve interface right yeah. it's not like yeah. they can just do whatever they want um but i will say a lot of a lot of things that you know i would i would guess fusion fusion users are like well you know why why can't i why can't i edit the the toolbar um like now you can't so yeah. hooray um i've talked to a couple fusion artists who in previous releases have said you know i can't i can't really do the serious work that i want to do like the big heavy lifting work um in the integrated version there's just too many things right, that just missing. just to be just to be clear for listeners uh fusion exists as a standalone product with a, a much more customizable interface and in theory, all those features are available in Resolve, uh, but it's a little different. It's a yeah, little different. Exactly. Anyway, those those same those same operators said, you know, this this version, I can do it. Right. This version has the the things that I was initially missing when Fusion was first integrated, um, and that's really nice to hear because you know it, it, these things take a while, um, and especially when you're trying to integrate something as different as fusion oh, yeah, has been to everything else it, it takes a while so i i think the engineering team has been correctly taking a slow and steady approach they've been you know knocking off issues as they've been coming up they've been increasing performance steadily uh you know i think i think the engineering team deserves a huge attaboy for how well they've been making this whole process of incredible integration work. Well, you talk about integration because you're right. You you have taken multiple standalone applications and put them into one. So so it's, it is an engineering achievement. And I was scan actually scanning down that bullet point list and I saw this one feature and I, I think this is a good one to end on because this is this sort of sums up a little bit about what you just talked about of you know kudos to engineers who can take these vastly different tools and put them under this one, uh, you know, this this one brand. But there's a feature in there. It says under general, in and out ranges are now synchronized between pages. Which it seems so simple, but yet if I mark an in and out point in the in the edit page, being that the Fairlight page was a totally different application, they had to drop in there something as simple as keeping an in and out point may not translate because you know. Uh, audio apps don't always have in and out points. They have these range selections, which are mm -hmm. different than an edit timelines in and out points. So to kind of, it seems like that should have had that from day one, but I don't know anything about engineering software, but I, I know well, enough that, so, that they're, these are different applications and they have to be somehow let, melded together. Let me throw you another mind bender because it's, it's easy. It's always easy to say, well, you know, this, this thing ought to work in such and such a way in all these places. It's that software. Be it can do anything. But, but don't forget, we have collaborative workflow. Yeah. And right. when you have collaborative workflow, now you can't have shared in and out points because you've got three different kinds of artists working in three completely different pages in three completely different ranges. So not only 
does Resolve have to be able to synchronize the in and out points, but it has to know when not to. Oh, wow, yeah. Nothing is simple in Resolve given that every UI concept has to be translated into three or four different traditions that each page is trying to respect yeah. as best as possible. That's pretty, that's pretty big. And at the same time, everything has to work within a collaborative workflow where potentially, you know, lots of artists are working in the same timeline in the same project in different ways. And speaking of collaboration, I believe uh, Grant mentioned that, that the collaboration features are going to be available to the free version as well as the studio version coming soon. Did I? Free as in beer. Oh, yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> free as in beer? You haven't heard that? Beer's never free. When has beer ever been and free and taken you know there what? tomorrow? I don't know where that phrase came from. It's Are they referring internet. to Budweiser? Because I could no, well, sort of see that. Good point. Yeah, who knows? It's because nobody wants to drink. But no, no, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting to me because it's easy to think that, well, collaborative is one of those things that only a big facility would ever want. Um, but, you know... The, the, the interesting thing about DaVinci Resolve is the heart of collaboration is uh, project server sharing. So you can set up a project server on any one of your network machines in, you know, in your in your suite, if you're two or three people working in the same room or on your floor or in your facility. And you can set up a network server to, to, to basically hold all the projects. Mm -hmm. So instead of sneaker netting your projects around or copying them around, export and import, all the projects can be in one place and every computer automatically connects to that one place. And so, you know, at its simplest, what this means is anyone can set up a world where a project server is serving the same projects to multiple machines, which makes it easy if you do nothing else, right? Even if you don't use collaboration, you can just say, hey, you know, Anne, um, I'm, I'm closing this project. You can go ahead and open it now and do whatever you want. And it's just like that, done. Um, but then on top of that, you have these interesting ways that multiple artists can work together. You know, even if it's two film students in a dorm room, mm -hmm. One person can be editing and the other person can be grading because, you know, oh, geez, we got to get this project done. You know, well, let me class, ask a question, though. Two, two people in the dorm room, though, but all that requires not a disk database, but a da database server thing. Is that is that right? Oh, post Postgres is built in. But you still have to set that database up on some kind of and, server somewhere and maintain and, it, do you not? No, no, it can be one of your two machines. The really? only requirement is that the server not be turned off. Usually, traditionally, like ever you know, in the people, world, or what do you like? What do you mean by well? Never? No, no, no. If someone turns off the project server, then your project goes away. Oh, yes, right. Yes. If you're while you're right. working, you mean Duh. yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you know, traditionally, people would get like the highest end Mac Mini they can get, and they would just set it up as a little headless server, and it would have all the projects, and everything would be fine. Mm -hmm. Um, but you can, I have set this up many times. You can, you can set up, say one person has an iMac and the other person has a laptop. Um, you can set up the project server on the iMac. It just runs in the background. You don't even have to see it. It's literally just opening up a port in SQL 
to say, hey, share this database with the world. Um, and because macOS is basically Unix and this also works for Windows and it obviously works for Linux, but as long as you just don't turn your iMac off, then it's serving all the projects yeah. to whoever connects to it. And we have uh, a little utility that comes with Resolve that is easy to use, um, that you just click a button and it sets you up with uh, a served uh, project server. And you click another button and it creates a little uh, file that you can drag and drop into the project manager on any machine to automatically connect to that. Cool. So uh, we've made it easy for anyone to set this up. I've been told that setting up the uh, the the uh, non-disk database is not as daunting or hard as it, as I may think it is. So that's um, that's that, that's good to know because I, I think the, the collaboration for everybody for free is pretty. That's 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 not small. But it seems like there's it's, less and less things that um, are in the studio version. I think one thing in the studio version now, though, I did see is uh, in the edit page, sort of a smart. Um, well, what's it called? The um, smart reframing, like say you're doing uh, social yes. 19 by six or one by ones. Um, yes. Uh, you know, the ability to sort of do that with the, uh, with the neural engine and that's, which is just, which is kind of nice, but I mean, you know, there's, you can do so much with the free, with the free version, which I think we all know it's pretty, um, it's pretty mind blowing. The, you know, the making collaborative available is so incredibly generous of black yeah. magic to do. Um, they're really to be commended to to make these kinds of advanced workflows available to to everybody because if nothing else it means that some junior operator who's up for a position at a facility has the opportunity to just quickly bone up on it mm -hmm. you know yep. on their own yep That's and hey, figure uh, it out alexis let me uh, i know we're, we're kind of running out of time but uh, apart from what we've talked about is is there any one favorite feature that you draw our attention to that we haven't talked about? Oh, it's like saying, saying what's your favorite <laughs> child? Well, give us a quirky one or all something. All right. All right. You know what? I'll, I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to hit, um, I'll try to hit uh, a handful that kind of covers what, what my specific areas of interest are. Um, you know, God knows I love everything that's happening in the cut, the color page, but honestly, almost my single favorite feature uh, everywhere in Resolve is the new render in place command. Uh, yes, this is mm. this is uh, because this is one of my, one of my as, favorites as well um, in my little article. Yeah, I'm I'm not such a big shot colorist that I get to escape finishing work. Um, and as a finishing artist, being able to just quickly choose one or more clips that you want to render out as self-contained pieces of permanent media, re-import and replace into the timeline um, to be able to do that with a single right click. Mm -hmm. Well, you and know, to be able to specify handles, specify where you yeah. want it to be written, specify what format you want it to be in. And if you choose multiple clips, that's a batch operation. Each clip is rendered as its own individual piece of media. All yeah, that media is stored in the media pool. And on top of that, if you change your mind later, you can right click any of those clips and you can revert to the original clip with effects to redo yeah, the original work and your your rendered media remains in the media pool. So you can still bring it back 
if you want, because yeah. it's a durable piece of media that will not be automatically deleted in any way. That's, that's a lot always... of tracking going on in that timeline to be able to, you know, because you could come back uh, two years from now, I'm taking it, and be able to undo that, right? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. pretty cool. I, I, I always mean, thought that's the uh, secret weapon of the flame. You know, with all the whiz-bang tools of the flame, what I noticed with flame artists is that they're very good at just rendering out chunks of media and bringing it back in onto their desktop, and that's what keeps their workflow so efficient in real time. So this is huge. It is huge, and it's you know, and it's a tiny little feature that's easy to miss. Um, right, right click a clip in the timeline, I... render in place. Yeah. And and it renders every single effect that's applied to that clip. And and you so know, and it's, it's worth noting that uh, you know, if you're if you're rendering your timeline in Resolve and you've got your rendering engine set up to be, say, ProRes HQ, um, and you render clips in the timeline, you don't get a bunch of ProRes HQ renders you can you can then extract from the render folder and play. It's like kind of a proprietary way in which Resolve does its rendering. But these render in place clips are brand new in the case of ProRes, .mov files, that when you choose render in place, you tell it what codec you want, um, handles if you want them, whether you want video effects included or not, and then where to place the clip. So at that point, you have you know a brand new .mov file that you could then send to someone else if you need to. And, um, and it's not just .movs, all the supported codecs are an option for render in place. So it's got a, it's got a ton of different possible uses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. So I, I can't think of anyone I know in post who is not going to benefit from that because that's also the ultimate get out of jail free card, right? We've all been there. It's three in the morning and God damn it. I could go home if only this project would render, but there's this one clip oh, yeah. that plays fine on online, but it won't render and what's going on. And this is exactly the kind of thing where it's like, you know what? I'll bet I can render it in place. Hey, that worked great. I'm done. Render gone. Um, so it's it's one of those life saving things. I mean, you know, oh, uh, you know, I've got this editor and they want all of this one particular effect to be baked in, and it's not one of the automatic things that the deliver page does. Fine, render in place. Um, you know, you can disable effects you don't want rendered in, render in place, and then re-add those effects that you want to be live. You can have it both ways. It's tremendously versatile. It's very nice. I, and I would, I would also put that near the top of my, uh, of, of my list. Um, gentlemen, I think we've, uh, bored everyone enough, not bored, but this is, it's, it's, been, <laughs> no, it's been a good, um, it's a good chat. Thanks Alexis for, I think the big thing to help people understand that color management thing is one of those really, uh, sort of kind of difficult subjects to understand, but it's really important in the, in I the, wrote it up in the manual and I tried to make it as clear as I could. How many pages so... is the manual now? Uh, well, <laughs> there's a new features guide that's going out with this version. Um, and what's really nice is unlike previous years, I now have a small group of people that I'm working with. So it's, I'm no longer the sole writer. So big kudos to my team for doing great work. Uh, I of course have written the whole color chapter myself because that's my jam. Um, and I've worked closely with the other writers on the team to make sure that Everything's written up the way I like to see it. You know, I, I like lots of explanation and lots of detail, so it's all there. Um, and uh, so I strongly, strongly recommend everyone to open up the new features guide. If for no other reason 
than to open up the TOC and the PDF and just see a nice long list of every single thing that's new. Yeah. You'll be bound to find a handful of things like being able to disable timelines um, so you can have them archived without having too many high timelines in your project that it will potentially save your workflow. The, uh, and the type of contents in that new features guide in the PDF is clickable, so you can kind of look at it and then click right to where you want to jump to. And it's only 240 pages. so um, It's only 240 pages. <laughs> Double it next time. Gentlemen, yeah. thanks for the uh, thanks for the chat here. We'll look forward to playing with the, uh, the new Resolve 17 beta. And then, um, you know, next year, maybe we'll talk about Resolve 18. All right. Until next time, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. All right.